guys, and welcome to the Moms and Mysteries podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. We had a birthday in my house this week. I can't believe you have a 10-year-old. I know. Your kids are double digits, both of them. That is wild. I know I was saying that I can't believe that my youngest child is 10 years old. That just feels really weird. I'm just like, what do I do now? I feel like I'm entering a whole different stage of life now, both my kids in double digits. So yeah, that's very exciting. He had an amazing birthday. He got um, a cell phone, which is something he's been asking for for a very long time. Right. Of course, my, of course, his big brother has had a phone for a couple of years now. So that's been every holiday, you know, and every birthday it's been, I want to get my own phone. So I kept kind of saying like, we'll talk about it when you're 10. So it got to a right. point where he was just expecting to get a phone for his right? birthday. Yeah. I, I was like, scared to not give him a phone. So so he he got his phone. Yeah. Yeah. So he got his phone and we went to a basketball game with some of his friends from school. I love it. And yeah, so it was great. So how has your week been? It's good. Less exciting. My son got his cast off. Um, That's exciting, though. Broken his elbow. It is. He handled it so well, honestly, the entire process. Like if you would have asked me a year ago what my biggest fear would have been, it would probably be him in a cast just because of who he is as a person (laughs) and (laughs) sometimes things are a little difficult so he handled it great like better than I would he never complained about his cast itching and my father-in-law actually wrote me and he was like I asked him you know is your cast itching and he said no and he's like you know what I realized I should have asked him if his arm was itching because he's so (laughs) literal no my cast is not itching (laughs) absolutely not my arm is on fire I can't scratch (laughs) him but you keep asking about the cast and I was like oh I forget we have to be very very literal with him so the whole time I'm like wow I can't believe your cast isn't itching. He's like, yeah. No, now ask about my arm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I'm glad that's done. He handled it great. And on to bigger and better things. It's a beautiful day here in Florida. It's so it nice today. I love it. Love it. it. I could live in this. Well, I do. Well, congratulations. You do. do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is really nice. I think we're going to get like a little cool snap next week. So that will be um, nice. When I say cool, I mean like 60s. So yeah. it's not like cold, but like that's not super sweating nice when you March. watch your yeah, car. Yeah, for we'll sure. take it. All right. So for the story this week, we're actually going back in time and telling a story from the 1900s. I just love calling it the 1900s. (laughs) I'm fine with you doing it. I don't like when my kids do it because I'm like, that's rude. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So if you're under the age of 60, which is probably most of our listeners, uh, this might be a completely new story to you. And if you're over the age of 60 and you're a movie buff, then you might be familiar with the story this week. The 1920s and 30s were a booming time in Hollywood. Live entertainment really started taking a decline and the film industry started to flourish. It was a time of massive change for the entertainment industry as they knew it at the time. And of course, we've only expanded on all of that over the last hundred years. But it's the time period from the 20s to about the early 60s that's known as the golden age of Hollywood. It was during this time that Mexican-American actor Ramon Navarro saw his rise to fame and became one of the first Latin American actors to make it big in Hollywood. Born in 1899, you heard that right, 1899, Jose Ramon Gil Samaniego was the first of 13 children. In 1913, Ramon's family fled Mexico during the Mexican Revolution, and they settled in Los Angeles, California, where Ramon was exposed to the heart of the entertainment industry. In 1917, when Ramon was 18 years old, he started off in the film industry as a bit actor. 
So if you're not familiar with different types of acting roles, a bit actor is higher than an extra, but is still lower than a supporting actor. And many aspiring actors that are trying to break into supporting or leading roles would take on these bit roles to start off with. Ramon went by his real name of Ramon Samaniego when he first started taking these roles. Some of his very first roles were in silent films, such as The Hostage, The Little American, and Joan the Woman, all of which were uncredited roles. His first official movie credit was in 1921 for a movie called A Small Town Idol, but his acting career was nowhere near being enough to pay his bills at that point, so Ramon also worked as a singing waiter. It was in 1922 when Ramon got his first real big break. He was cast in Rex Ingram's The Prisoner of Zenda as a villainous henchman. And while working with Rex on this film, Rex actually suggested that Ramon change his name from Ramon Samaniego to Ramon Navarro, and that's what he started going by from that point on. His performance in The Prisoner of Zenda launched his career and led Ramon to being cast in leading roles in two films in 1923 and 1924. And soon after that, Ramon was signed with MGM, where he became hugely successful, eventually becoming MGM's highest-earning male actor and the second-largest income generator in general, second only to Joan Crawford. Whoa. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. So at the height of his success, Ramon was bringing in about $100,000 per film, which in today's world would amount to about $1.7 million. In 1925, Ramon hit it big when he played the starring role in another Rex Ingram film, Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ. Ramon played Judah Ben-Hur, a wealthy man turned slave. It was the most expensive silent film ever made at the time, and this film is what really shot Ramon to stardom and sealed his fate as one of the great romantic actors of his time. Ramon often played roles in which he was like the Latin lover, but unlike other Latino actors, Ramon wasn't forced into stereotypes. Other than starring as a Latin lover, Ramon was also cast as a quote-unquote swashbuckler, which, according to Wikipedia, is a heroic protagonist character who is skilled in swordsmanship, acrobatics, and possesses chivalrous ideals. Quite like a pirate? Man. It is a pirate. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is a pirate. So Wikipedia further states that a swashbuckler is heroic, daring, and idealistic. He rescues damsels in distress, he protects the downtrodden, and uses duels to defend his honor or that of a lady or to avenge a comrade. How many duels can you get in and live through? I always wonder that when they're like, we're going to take this to a duel. Really? Yeah. <laughs> One of us is going to die. So I don't know if I feel like doing that today. So Ramon stepped into his full potential and became Hollywood's number one Latin lover in 1926 when fellow actor Rudolph Valentino passed away. And from there, Ramon's career only continued to soar. In the late 1920s, he starred in Across to Singapore alongside Joan Crawford. Meanwhile, Ramon continued his singing career, progressing from his one-time gig as a singing waiter to performing across Europe and South America. Finally, in 1929, with a decade of acting experience under his belt, Ramon starred in his first ever talkie, which, Mandy, you it's know so this. adorable. It's, it's the so cutest adorable. thing ever. <laughs> it's literally a movie, but with sound, and they're called talkies. I love that. Let's go to the AMC and see a talkie. I love it. It's like the coolest thing ever. And honestly... In that time, I can't even imagine how cool it must have been at the time to be able to go to the movies and actually hear them talking whenever you're accustomed to just having silent films. Like, that had to be crazy. Here I am going, 
I'm going off, Melissa. Let me just stop talking. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. So the movie was called Devil May Care. And while it seems that fans would have been really excited to see Ramon talking in a film, it actually had the opposite effect. Up until this point, no one knew that Ramon spoke with an accent because he had only been in these silent films. So when the audience heard Ramon in his first talkie, his career actually started to lose steam. Between 1930 and 1932, Ramon starred in seven more talkies, which Turner Classic Movies called Uninspired, which, yikes, that's like a terrible, uh -huh. terrible way to put it. Uh, they said that Ramon just couldn't quite translate his silent stardom into the sound era. Ramon made three more movies in the early 1930s, but by 1935, his MGM contract had expired and his career was fizzling out. In his post-MGM career, Ramon made a few movies with Republic Pictures, but none of them were as successful as his earlier films from the 1920s had been. As his acting career really came to an end, Ramon turned to alcohol, which would become a decades-long struggle for him. His alcohol addiction eventually led to the resurfacing of some really personal struggles that Ramon had repressed for years. Ramon was a gay man who had kept his sexuality a secret. He was not comfortable discussing it with anybody, including the people who already knew that he was gay. Ramon struggled to reconcile his own sexuality with his Roman Catholic upbringing, and his alcohol addiction made all of these internal battles just that much harder for him to navigate. In the late 1930s and 1940s, any film roles that Ramon was cast in uh, were just smaller supporting roles, but his days as the leading actor were long gone. By the 1950s, he was back to just doing small bit parts and character work, and he also did some work on television. He unfortunately continued struggling with alcoholism along the way, and in the 1960s, he got caught driving under the influence twice and lost his driver's license. Those who knew Ramon closely said that the alcohol abuse really aged Ramon quickly. He also suffered from emphysema and arthritis. By the time the 1960s rolled around, Ramon's acting career was pretty much non-existent, but he was still financially secure thanks to his earlier success, and he lived as a recluse, occasionally appearing on NBC and on TV shows like Bonanza, which Haley wanted to make sure I included that fact for you. Melissa, are you I a know. Bonanza fan? No, it's not so much that I'm a Bonanza fan, but we both love Bananas for Bonanzas. Uh, Bonanza, it's just like an offshoot podcast. I love, I was like, ban Bonanza <laughs> is such a random one to put in there, but no, that makes total sense. Thanks, Haley. <laughs> so the last thing that Ramon actually filmed was an episode of the TV show, The High Chaparral, and this was his 64th acting role, according to IMDb. And we have so much more to get into with this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. The holidays are behind us and summer is right around the corner, but we finally made it to a very, very busy time of year, and that is wedding season. I'm actually getting ready to attend a wedding myself next weekend for my younger brother. I'm so pumped to see family and friends that I haven't seen in years and to also tear up the dance floor with my incredible and not terrible dance moves. And I'll be doing it all with confidence thanks to Honey Love. Honey Love is a game changer in the world of shapewear. Not only will it not roll down on you like other shapewares, but there's hidden boning in it that's flexible, so you don't feel like you're wearing some medieval corset. Plus, their bodysuits have 360-degree bonded compression that smooths out your tummy and hips so you aren't constantly pulling at your clothes, which is so annoying when you're just looking to have a nice time. 
I've worn my Honey Love Shapewear before and will absolutely be wearing it for this wedding because it not only works, but it's actually comfortable. Plus, Honey Love has a 100% cotton gusset, so it's easy to take your bathroom breaks as opposed to trying to get in and out of shapewear like you're auditioning for Mission Impossible. So say goodbye to uncomfortable shapewear and say hello to the comfiest, most convenient shaping experience of your life. Treat yourself to the best shaper on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com with the code MOMS20. Use code MOMS20 at honeylove.com. Melissa, if I were to ask you to name a member of the Beatles or New Kids on the Block, could you answer in under 15 seconds? Just kidding. I know the answer. You absolutely could. And then you'd give me facts on how they're somehow connected and next thing I know, you'd be telling me your new favorite TV show that I have to watch. Okay, so that's hurtful, but it's very, very true. But thanks to Trivia Star, you don't have to quiz me on all things trivia because I can get my trivia fix right on my phone. Trivia Star is a free mobile trivia game with over 60 different categories that you get to choose from. Things like TV for me, animals for you, and celebrities also for me. What I really love about Trivia Star, though, is unlike some of the other trivia games I've played, I'm not getting those same questions over and over again. But as I answer more questions correctly, the questions get more and more difficult. But if I get stuck, I can just use coins and gems to get hints to beat the level. And right now, Trivia Star is offering you 2,500 coins and 500 gems when you download and play. So whether you're a trivia novice or just want something new and fun to play, check out Trivia Star. Trivia Star has thousands of five-star reviews in the Apple Store and is the number one trivia game on the App Store. Download it today to challenge yourself. Just go to the Apple or Google Store and search for Trivia Star. Download Trivia Star for free today and get ready to flex your brain muscles. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Ramon Navarro's career and kind of what leads him up to this day in 1968. So late in 1968, Ramon is living in his home in Laurel Canyon. At the age of 69, he was unfortunately still struggling with alcoholism and he was still hiding his sexuality. Ramon would often hire escort services and he'd have his secretary named Edward write these checks out to pay the escorts, but he would have something fake written in the memos like gardening services or cleaning the house, stuff like that. So on October 30th, 1968, Ramon hires an escort service that he'd used in the past. And at around 4.30 p.m., two men show up for this call. These men were 22-year-old Paul Ferguson and his 17-year-old brother, Tom. Ramon met the young men at the door in a blue and red silk robe and offered them some alcohol and chicken gizzards. Nature's (laughs) aphrodisiac. (laughs) I mean... It was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. That I just like if you would have said Melissa, I will give you a hundred guesses as to what <laughs> food was provided, I would have never made it to chicken gizzards. At least not in the top hundred. So he also ordered cigarettes for the men from the liquor store. So Ramon's secretary, named Edward, who happened to also be at the liquor store at the time that Ramon was placing this order, actually delivered the cigarettes to Ramon's house at 5 30 PM. So Ramon was expecting someone to deliver these cigarettes, but he wasn't expecting Edward or really anyone he knew for that matter to show up at his house during this time when he has these two male escorts there. So when Edward knocks on the door, Ramon is very surprised to see him. Ramon's still wearing his silk robe and Edward immediately notices this scent of lotion and notices that Ramon's cleaned up his facial hair, which made Edward believe that Ramon was not alone. 
Plus, Edward knew Ramon well, and he knew he didn't smoke, so he deduced that there must be someone else there that Ramon had ordered the cigarettes for. So Ramon took the cigarettes and sent Edward on his way without actually inviting him in the house that evening. And this would be the last time that Edward ever saw Ramon alive. At 8.30 the next morning, Edward shows up to work at Ramon's house, and he notices that the house is in complete disarray. Edward had a key to Ramon's house, so he was able to let himself inside, and that's when he saw alcohol bottles everywhere, there was furniture that was tipped over, and a broken pair of glasses laying on the floor. There was also a trail of blood leading from the living room into the den and then into the bedroom. Edward continued to search the house to look for Ramon. When Edward got to Ramon's bedroom, he saw that Ramon was lying naked on his bed with his face severely beaten and multiple scratches on his neck. Edward soon realized that Ramon was dead. Edward immediately called authorities and several people, first responders and just even people who were stopping by to see what was going on, all started to arrive within minutes. It was noted that there was smeared blood on the floor in the bedroom and on the ceiling. They also found a tooth on the floor at the foot of the bed. On a mirror in the bedroom, someone had used a brown makeup pencil to write a homophobic message, and then the name Larry was written in ink on the bedsheet next to Ramon's body. A preliminary coroner's report stated that Ramon's hands were tied behind his back with a brown electrical cord and that an electrical cord extended down and was also tied around his ankles. Ramon was also found with a condom in his right hand, and he had many lacerations and bruises on his head and face. A photographer for a local newspaper that was on the scene taking pictures found a bloody jacket, an undershirt, a t-shirt, and two pairs of underwear on the other side of the fence that divided Ramon's property from his neighbors. So basically somebody ran out there and threw the stuff over the fence into the neighbor's yard like that would solve all the problems. And why would you do – that doesn't make any sense. You know they're going to find it. That does not make any sense whatsoever. Right. There is a neighbor. You see clothes in your backyard. yard, right. Yeah, like that's like a 10-minute window you've just bought yourself. For sure. So there was initially some confusion about who all those clothes belonged to. They could have been Ramones, but police quickly latched on to the idea that they belonged to the murderer, although they were still confused about why the murderer would dump bloody clothes in the neighbor's yard. An autopsy later revealed that Ramones' cause of death was from suffocation due to choking on the blood from his facial injuries. In other words, he was beaten to death. He had a fractured nose, bruising on his chest, neck, left arm, knees, and genitalia. The autopsy showed that Ramon had a blood alcohol level that was three times over the legal limit. It was also believed that a heavy item was used to beat Ramon over the head, but at the time, the police could not clarify what that item was. They would later say that they believed he was beat with a walking cane. Word of Ramon's murder quickly made front page headlines all across the country. So at first, police couldn't pinpoint a motive for the murder. There was really nothing missing except for a shirt. So they began their search by looking into local male sex workers and interviewing them. Interestingly enough, Ramon had hired a male escort named Larry Ortega a week before he was killed, and he had actually hired Larry several times before. This was of interest because of the fact that the name Larry was written on the sheet at the crime scene. It was revealed during the interviews that some people thought Ramon may have invited Larry's brother-in-law, Paul Ferguson, over to the house. Paul's name actually came up a few times in these first interviews, so he was quickly put on the investigator's radar. Next, police looked through Ramon's call log. They found a call was made on October 30th at 8.21 p.m. to a number belonging to a 19-year-old woman in Chicago named Brenda. 
When police contacted her, she told them that her boyfriend, Tom Ferguson, was using her phone and he's the one that made that call. Brenda said, quote, Tom told me that he and his brother were invited to this movie star's house. Then he told me he was working and trying to save enough money so he could send me about $300 so I could come down there and get married. I don't know how he got on the subject, but Tom told me that his brother knew there was $5,000 behind one of the pictures in the house and they were going to try to find it, end quote. Which is like, wow, Brenda, you got a whole motive right there. Right. In like 30 seconds, they were like, okay, Brenda Brenda knows what's going on. Thanks, Brenda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brenda said that Tom told her that his brother was upstairs with Ramon and he was trying to find out where this money was. Brenda said, quote, then I heard a little bit of yelling and Tom said, I have to go before my brother really hurts Ramon and I want to find out what's going on. And that was the end. He hung up, end quote. So after speaking with Brenda, police had a possible motive for the murder, and that was robbery. And based on these early leads, investigators compared fingerprints found at the crime scene to those of brothers Tom and Paul Ferguson. They actually didn't have to take fingerprints from the men because both of these men were already convicted criminals and their prints were in the system. And it didn't take long for the results of the test to come back. Prints found at the crime scene matched Tom and Paul's within just a few days of the murder. Wow. So Paul and Tom actually came from a bit of a rocky upbringing. Their parents, Lucky and Lorraine, had 10 children in total to raise. And because Lucky was a steeplejack and had unstable employment, the family moved between Alabama and Illinois to be wherever the work was. The brothers weren't very close growing up, which was likely due to their five-year age difference. Paul was the oldest of the 10 kids. So although he wasn't particularly close with Tom, they did have a few things in common, like they both got in trouble with the law and they frequently ran away from home and they both dropped out of school, although they were both described as being very smart. According to Paul, their father was an alcoholic who would rather get drunk than buy groceries or pay bills. Paul said that Lucky was also a daredevil to the point of carelessness and that he was a womanizer. He actually said, this is a quote, that his father was a regular hillbilly POS, um, which tells you everything you need to know about how he felt about his dad. Right. So Lucky often left Lorraine alone with the 10 kids and with no income while he took off for weeks at a time. Paul says that he had to resort to sex work beginning as early as the age of 10 just to get some money to buy meat, beans, and bread for his siblings. Oh, my gosh. That, I mean, it's just heartbreaking. It's hard to even read that, like to even like say those words that a child that age was put into that position or felt that they were in that position to have to, you know, do that to feed their siblings. Like that's so heartbreaking. When Paul was 10, his dad hit him. So he hitchhiked all the way from Florida to Chicago to stay with his grandmother, which again, thinking about a 10-year-old hitchhiking to another state- is absolutely terrifying. So he eventually did go back home, and his father, Lucky, died two years later from spinal meningitis. After his father's death, Paul and Tom's mom, Lorraine, remarried a man named Norman Smith, and they had two more kids together. Paul left home for good when he was just 14. He hitchhiked to Mexico and then to Wyoming to find work as a rancher. When he was 15, he lied about his age in order to join the Army, and he was honorably discharged a year later. At 16, he got married to a 42-year-old woman, and the marriage was annulled after nine months. But by the time Paul was 19, he was married again for a second time, and this was another marriage that ended in divorce. Throughout different times in his life, Paul found himself in trouble with the law and racked up a criminal record with charges of aggravated battery and robbery. At some point, he moved to Los Angeles. 
Throughout all of this, Paul regularly posed for nudes and appeared in pornographic films as well as working in sex work. Tom followed in Paul's footsteps and left home at the age of 15. He was also in and out of juvenile detention centers and psychiatric facilities, but the reasons for his institutionalizations aren't really clear. As the years passed, Paul and Tom didn't really have any contact with each other. But in 1966, when Paul was 20 and Tom was 15, Tom crashed at Paul's place while he was passing through the area. On his second day there, Tom stole some jewelry from Paul's girlfriend, pawned it for cash, and took off. And the brothers didn't see each other again for two years. By the fall of 1968, Paul was 22 years old and on his third marriage. He and his wife Mary met when her brother Larry introduced them. Larry was a sex worker who would sometimes try to get Paul to do these jobs for him. And as we said before, Larry was also frequently hired by Ramon Navarro. On October 21st, Tom showed up in L.A. looking for a place to stay, and he contacted Paul. Tom had escaped and run away from a reform school in Illinois, where he had been sent because he robbed and beat someone up. After leaving the school, Tom went to his grandmother's house, who then told him to go to L.A. and stay with his brother. Paul's wife, Mary, was not at all excited to have Tom in her home. She said Tom made her feel uncomfortable, and they didn't have the money to feed another mouth. Paul had recently been fired from his job just before Tom arrived, and he and Mary were financially struggling, which caused issues in their relationship even before Tom came into the picture. But Tom didn't leave. He continued to stay with Paul and Mary and occasionally did sex work for money. After a little over a week of this uncomfortable arrangement, Mary had enough. She and Paul got into a big fight that ended with Mary leaving to go stay with her parents. Mary told Paul that he had to get Tom out, that he was not allowed to stay at their home anymore. But she said Paul could try and hook Tom up with someone who would give him a place to stay in exchange for sex work. Paul then contacted a man he knew named Victor and asked if he knew anyone who might want Tom's services in exchange for a place to stay. Victor said he did have someone in mind, and that person was Ramon Navarro. Victor gave Ramon's number to Paul so they could get in touch. When Paul contacted Ramon to ask about all of this, Ramon was receptive and invited Paul to come to his house the next day. And we still have so much more to get into after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. This week, I had a mystery to solve at home, and it was the mystery of what the smell was in my refrigerator. The good news is that I solved the mystery. The bad news is, well, let's just focus on the good news and not exactly what I found in the back of my fridge. And while I do love to solve a mystery, I prefer my mysteries to be something fun, like June's Journey, and not like the expired food I found in the back of my fridge. Unlike me, June Parker, the amateur detective and star of June's Journey, really has her life together. The game is set in the decadent 1920s, and when you play June's Journey, your goal is to help June solve her sister's murder. While donning your detective cap, you can play all sorts of things within the game, like finding hidden clues while playing in this beautiful and immersive scenery. I'm in chapter three now, but back in chapter two, I met a really interesting character. And while I'd love to tell you more, it's up to you to find out if he's a friend or a foe. Once you reach the fifth chapter, you can hunt down your first international clues in a lush locale. I love playing June's Journey at the end of the night when I'm trying to wind down or when I just need a win for myself. And I think you guys will love the beautiful scenery and the characters you meet along the way. 
Pick up where you left off to uncover new secrets or start your investigation today and download June's Journey, available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. I've been thinking a lot lately about how at different points of my life, I've reached new realizations about myself. I'm not the same person I was in my 20s, thank goodness, and I hope I'm not the same person in my 40s, but that I can grow as a person even more. Life is always changing and sometimes you need help navigating that growth and BetterHelp may be the partner you're looking for as you grow. To get started with BetterHelp, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist who is right for you. If you meet with a BetterHelp therapist and find that it's not clicking or you just want someone else, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Plus, BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and of course suited to your schedule. I'm a big believer in therapy and I've spoken to therapists throughout my adult life. Having someone you can share your thoughts with that isn't intimately connected with your life can be incredibly cathartic as you work through things within yourself. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash moms today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash moms. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes... Not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were telling the story of Ramon Navarro and who he was as one of the biggest Latin American actors um, in a time when movies were really just starting to become very, very popular. And we started getting into who these two men, Tom Ferguson and his brother Paul, who they were, and how these two men were the last people to see Ramon Navarro alive. The two brothers were dropped off at Ramon's house by a friend on October 30th at about 4.30 in the afternoon. Ramon let them inside and offered them alcohol with the clear intention of paying for sex in one way or another. But something went horribly wrong that evening, and Ramon was found dead in his bedroom with the whole house looking like it had been turned upside down. Once the police were able to identify Paul and Tom's fingerprints at the crime scene, they were both arrested on November 6th. After their arrests, the men were interviewed to find out exactly what happened. Tom told detectives that he'd been on the phone with his girlfriend Brenda when Paul and Ramon went to the bedroom to have sex. Tom said that when he went into the room, he saw that Ramon had been hit in the face and the back of his head was bleeding. So Tom took Ramon to the shower to help him get cleaned up. Paul, on the other hand, claimed that he had passed out from drinking. And when he woke up, Ramon was dead. And he said that his brother Tom had killed him. When the men left Ramon's, they walked to Victor's apartment. So if you remember, Victor was the man that they had originally called looking for a potential client. And Victor is who gave them Ramon's phone number. So they go to his apartment and they confess to Victor that Ramon was dead. And Victor says, you guys got to get out of here. He gave them $8 so they could get a taxi back to Paul's place and he told them to leave. 
Paul later said that he and Tom walked for what seemed like forever that day and that Tom just wouldn't stop asking questions. Paul said, quote, I'd tell him to shut up. There's no reason or rhyme. It was just being lost. There was no place to go. What could I do? There was nothing to do. It was over with. Both Paul and Tom were charged with first-degree murder. It was decided at the arraignment that 17-year-old Tom would be tried as an adult and Paul would be held without bond until the trial. Although the prosecution was seeking the death penalty for Paul, they weren't able to do that for Tom's because he was a minor. The joint trial for the brothers began on July 28, 1969. Unfortunately, Ramon's murder and the subsequent trial for the killers gave the whole world a look inside of Ramon's most private life and revealed all of the things that he had spent his life trying to hide. Prosecutors argued that the Ferguson brothers never intended to kill Ramon, but merely to rob him. They said that they ended up torturing Ramon to death, trying to get him to reveal where he kept money hidden in his home. The prosecution said that when Ramon told the men that he didn't have this stash of hidden cash, that they decided to beat him. Despite Ramon telling the men repeatedly that he never kept large sums of money or expensive jewelry at his house, they didn't believe him and they kept beating him in the face and the head. The only money that the brothers ended up finding was a measly $45 from an unemployment payment. The prosecution also alleged that the clothes that were found in the neighbor's yard were Tom and Paul's clothes. Spoiler alert, like we didn't see that one coming. And that they changed out of them and wore Ramon's clothes when they fled the scene, which again, truly one of the worst ideas I've ever heard to just be like, I'm going to chunk it to the neighbor's house. Not even a garbage can. It's like, it reminds me of like when your kid cleans their room and then you find everything in the closet. Like where, exactly. You knew I was going to look there. (laughs) Right. Like that is very close. Um, So the brothers then staged it to look like there had been a robbery and they wrote the name Larry on the bed to hopefully deflect attention from themselves onto Larry Ortega, which is interesting because Larry's Paul's brother-in-law. So it seems like a really weird person to kind of try to throw under the bus, but who knows, maybe he didn't like him. But also if I was the police, I'd be like, Larry, well, we know it's not Larry because who would put their name in a crime scene? I'd be like, all Larry's are... Are completely innocent. You wouldn't tag you know a crime scene like that. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. No, it's that's such a like. How do you? I don't. I just don't <laughs> get the like the the way your brain has to work to to get to that. So Tom's girlfriend Brenda testified that Tom told her that they went to Ramon's house looking for five thousand dollars, and that Tom called her while they were at Ramon's house, and she could hear these screams in the background during that call. And Brenda asked Tom what's going on, and Tom tells her, you know, we're just trying to find this money. So Tom tells Brenda he has to get off the phone and go make sure Paul hadn't seriously hurt Ramon. Paul's friend Victor, who was the one that actually hooked him up with Ramon, also testified for the prosecution and told the court that Paul admitted to beating Ramon after he said Ramon made it unwanted sexual advances at him, something Victor had never mentioned to the police before. And so Victor's testimony actually ended up being better for the defense than the prosecution because they were able to argue that Victor never told the investigators the entire story. Despite being interviewed multiple times, Victor never told the police that Paul admitted to killing Ramon until he was on the stand. In the trial, Paul was represented by a private attorney while Tom was represented by a court-appointed one. But both of their defense attorneys argued that if the brothers even killed Ramon, it was only manslaughter and not murder. So Paul's lawyer placed some of the blame on the alcohol, and he said that Paul was really too intoxicated to even have any idea what he was doing, and he would have been incapable of even forming an intent to murder due to this intoxication. 
a psychiatrist testified that Paul actually had brain damage. And although he was mentally competent, he did have diminished mental capacity. And he said that this played a partial role in why the murder happened. Each brother took the stand in their own defense, but the testimony was really confusing and often directly contradicting what the other one had said. Paul claimed that he passed out from drinking while they were at Ramon's house, and when he woke up, Tom told him that Ramon was dead. He completely pointed the finger at his brother Tom as being the killer. Paul said that night when they went over to Ramon's, he kind of had this don't-care state of mind because he had gotten into this big fight with his wife Mary. When talking about this fight they had, he actually started crying on the stand. He also said that it was Tom's idea to stage a robbery and that he just went along with all of it because he was, quote, just being stupid. Prosecutors asked Paul why he told the police a different story than the one he was telling on the stand, and Paul said that he had done all of it for Tom. He had tried to lie to protect his brother because he was under the impression that since Tom was a minor, the court system would go easier on him. Tom's lawyer, of course, has a big problem with Paul's story because it's basically saying that Tom acted alone in killing Ramon. So Tom was then put on the stand to tell his version of the story. Tom told the court that he didn't attack Ramon. He said he was on the phone with Brenda while Paul was doing this assaulting. He said after he got off the phone, he went and saw that Ramon was badly beaten. He was bloody, but he was still alive, so Tom helped him get in the shower and clean him up. He admitted that he did come up with the idea to stage it to look like a robbery, but he insisted that he did not take part in the murder itself. He said his brother tried to convince him to take the fall for the murder because of his age. Paul said if he got convicted, he would get the death penalty. But if Tom took the fall, he'd only get six months in jail because he was a minor. Tom actually originally agreed with this plan because he believed his brother and he thought he'd get a lighter sentence. But once he heard about how Ramon was believed to have been beaten with a cane, he changed his mind. Tom alleged that after Paul killed Ramon, he danced around his house covered in blood. Hmm. Continuing. At some point during Tom's testimony, Paul got angry and actually threw a pen at him, calling him a liar and yelling at him to tell the truth. Tom and Paul's mom, Lorraine, testified in the trial as well. She actually put the blame on Tom and said that he'd been in trouble with the law as well as in and out of psychiatric institution for most of his life. She said she was actually scared of Tom and stated that Paul hadn't been in any trouble which isn't true. They literally had his fingerprints from a previous crime he had committed. So it's brought up in court that Lorraine actually wrote a letter to Tom that looked like she was trying to convince him to take the blame as well. It said in part, quote, when you testify, think about what you're saying. You're holding Paul's life in your hands, end quote. During closing arguments, the prosecution argued that despite what the brother said, both of them were to blame for the murder. They both went there with the intention of torturing Ramon in hopes that he would give them money. Each of the brothers' attorneys argued that it was the other one who killed Ramon while their client was an innocent bystander. Tom's lawyer also alleged that his mom and Paul were conspiring to focus the blame on Tom so that Paul could avoid the death penalty. On September 17th, after two days of deliberating over the very confusing and contradictory testimony, the jury ended up finding both Paul and Tom guilty of first-degree murder. The same jury would have to decide whether or not Paul would be sentenced to death, and Tom automatically got a life sentence because, as we said before, he was a minor. During the death penalty hearing, Tom took the stand and, for the first time, stated that he was fully responsible for the killing and that Paul was asleep when it happened. This was, of course, a lie. He was just doing what he could at this point to stop his brother from being sentenced to death, and it worked. The jury actually opted for a life sentence for Paul. Both of the men were sent to San Quentin to do their time. 
in prison, Paul actually did very well, which sounds a little bit weird to say, but some people actually do go to prison and try to make something of themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what Paul did. He actually thrived in prison. He got married again and took classes and won an award for a short story that he wrote back in 1975. Tom didn't have such a smooth transition into prison life. He tried to escape multiple times and spent a lot of his time in solitary confinement. And he also started doing drugs while he was in prison. After spending just seven years behind bars, both of the brothers were paroled and they went their separate ways and never saw each other again after that. How do you go from those sentences to seven years? I know. Seven years. That's and they're young. So they're they're like 30 and right. they have their entire lives. That is wild. So after his time in prison, Tom later married the psychiatrist who helped him while he was behind bars, and he even got a job working in a mental institution for a while. The marriage ended in divorce, but Tom got married again and had a daughter with his second wife. This marriage also ended in divorce. In 1985, Tom was back in prison after being convicted of the rape of a 54-year-old woman. He spent a short five years there and was paroled in 1990. That also gets me. Like, how have you already done time for a murder and then you commit another heinous crime and you only get five years? Like, that's clearly you have a pattern of being a dangerous person. Like, I think we need to give you a little more than five years this time. That's crazy to me. It is. Yeah. He was back in court by 1991. So just a year later on public intoxication charges, failure to appear in court and petty theft. Upon his release, Tom went and stayed with another one of his brothers and his partner, but things were just not going well. Tom would do really unstable things like slash up the pillows around the house with a knife, or sometimes he'd be found sleeping on the roof. Tom eventually moved to Palm Springs. In 2005, Tom died by suicide. His sister said that he maintained his innocence in Ramon's murder until the day he died. She said she doesn't think Tom was ever able to move on from the whole thing. This same sister also felt that Tom kind of got lost in the shuffle of being one of 12 kids and that he never felt loved. After Paul's release, he stayed out of prison for several years as well. He married his fourth wife and had a son with her, and he started a few businesses. In 1989, however, Paul was also convicted of rape and sodomy. But unlike Tom, he was given a longer sentence of 60 years. Paul claimed that he had been framed in this case as well, which is sort of what he was saying. Right. With Ramones, yeah. Yeah, that was pretty much his defense the first time too. So Paul later confessed to causing Ramones' death. He said that he was in a drunken stupor when it happened, but he did admit to hitting Ramon, not with the intent to kill him, but because he says that he found himself overwhelmed by Ramon and his sexual advances. He said that his brother Tom really had basically no involvement, and he was on the phone with his girlfriend Brenda when the assault was taking place. Paul said that after he hit Ramon, he went back into the front room and poured a drink and sat down on the couch, and he dozed off. And then when he woke up, his brother Tom was standing over him saying, you got to come with me. So Paul said that Tom led him into the bedroom and pointed at Ramon and said, this guy's dead. Paul saw that Ramon was lying on the floor, so the men picked him up and put him on the bed and staged it to look like a robbery. Paul says that he told his lawyer and his mom the truth about what happened, and they both told him that he couldn't say any of that on the stand or he would end up getting the death penalty. He said that Tom got wrapped up in all the circumstances. Paul spent the rest of his life in prison. He died in 2018 at the age of 72 at the Crossroads Correctional Center in Cameron, Missouri. And as for Ramon Navarro, 
He will always be remembered as being one of the first Latin American actors to make it big in Hollywood, and his existence is memorialized with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. This was a wild story. It really was. I always just enjoy hearing stories from such a long time ago. I I feel like, and honestly, as I said, I called it the 1900s in the beginning of the episode, which is funny because technically it is, but it makes it sound like it was that much longer ago. But I was telling my husband while I was doing some um, research, I was looking up some what things were like in Hollywood, you know, in the 20s and everything. And I was like, hold on. This is a strange feeling realizing that 1920 was 100 years ago. I was like, what is going on right now? So to even think about Ramon, like making his rise to fame 100 years ago, it's just like, wow, it's so interesting to kind of hear stories from such a long time ago. It really is really strange to think of that. And even to think 100 years ago, like, Silent movies? I don't know. I feel like yeah. we're making us ourselves sound both young and old at the same I know. time, <laughs> which I'm okay with. I'm okay with it. All right, Melissa. So let's move on to last thing before we go. Sure. I thought it would be fun this week. I know that you love trivia. Love it. You're a trivia girl. Um, so I, I didn't do anything too crazy, but I thought it would be fun to do some movie, like some movie style trivia and see what you know. I'm nervous. Okay. <laughs> Being put on the spot always makes me nervous. Okay. I'm going to do my best. Okay. I have multiple choices, but if you just happen to know the answers, you can just shout them out. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So do you know what the highest grossing movie of all time is? I thought it was Avatar, but I'm not sure. You are correct. It is Avatar. I was surprised actually by that. I don't know what happened that year, but people were like, we're only seeing Avatar. I saw Avatar for Valentine's Day. Does that even sound like a thing people do? (laughs) That's how I know because it was I did see it. Yeah, I did see it in the theater in 3D actually when it first oh. came out. But I'm just—I was just surprised to hear that um, that was the number one highest grossing do, movie guys. of all time. That's yeah. that was a shocker to me. Okay, so Melissa, you know that one of my all-time favorite movies is The Wizard of Oz, right? So in the scene where Dorothy falls asleep in the poppy field and Glenda the Good Witch makes it snow, what do you think they use to simulate the snow? I'm going to give you multiple choice Ooh, on this one. Okay, was it coconut flakes? cornflakes, asbestos, or powdered sugar? Oh my gosh, if it was asbestos. Um, I'm going to say coconut flakes. It was asbestos. <gasps> no! Yes. And so I did like a little bit more research. Did and you I Google, guess, okay, we need to know I that did. this is true. So that was like a thing. Of course, like at that time, they didn't know <laughs> that you're going to um, get seriously ill from this. And the Wicked Witch's broom and Scarecrow's entire outfit were also made of asbestos. So... Stop it. I'm dead serious. I was like, there's no way. Like, they just have asbestos raining down on her while she's like. That is the worst thing I've ever heard. And we're all like, that's so beautiful. I know. I know. Oh, my gosh. So terrible. Yeah. Okay. So kind of in the same vein. In the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street. Have you seen that one? I have, but it's been years. Yeah. So actually, that's one of my favorite movies to like turn on at the end of the night to just fall asleep to. I'm such what? a weirdo. I don't what? know. Why that I like that's that the weirdest so thing I've ever. I've, I fall asleep to The Office and you're like, Wolf of Wall Street, just total <laughs> pandemonium. Okay. Right. So in that movie, they do a lot of drugs. They do a lot of cocaine. Sure, of course. <laughs> so what do you think the actors are snorting in the scenes where they're doing drugs? Is it actual cocaine, flour, baby powder, or B vitamins? I think it's B vitamins. No, no, no. I don't. Uh, I feel like I heard something with it being B vitamins in some movie. But then like David Spade said that and then he was like jacked up after that. So I'm going to go with flower. 
oh my gosh, do you think they would make them snort flour? I feel like that would be dangerous in some way. I mean, more dangerous than more dangerous than cocaine, like doing cocaine on the set. Okay, what was it? It's it is B vitamins. Oh, okay. Well, I thought that was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. But I think I think it was David Spade who said that he had to do it on some movie set. Or, or a TV show, and he was like <laughs> totally like tweaking out after that. And they're like, I think maybe he did too much of that. Well, I don't know. B vitamins are supposed to give you like a little energy boost, so maybe it's the new. He had maybe. several takes. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay, so here's one that's a little bit more family friendly. So, what was the first Pixar movie to be rated higher than a G rating in the United States? Ooh, was it, can I get was choices? It, yeah. Yes, was it Finding Nemo, Wall-E? The Incredibles or Monsters Inc. Ooh, I feel like those all came out around the same time. I'm gonna go with The Incredibles. Yes, it was The Incredibles. Oh, I didn't okay. read why they gave it. It must have been for violence or something. Oh, I was thinking that I just feel like there were more adult kind of jokes in that movie than anything else. Yeah, like I the didn't mom look up was the a little hottie. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> for sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So, all right, last one. This is very easy for you, Melissa. I was going to ask it earlier, and then I messed up my order of things. Um, so in the movie Toy Story, the character Woody is voiced by what famous Hollywood actor? Um, Tom Hanks. Well, wait, yes, yes Tom yes. Hanks. I was very thinking, good. well, I know it's Tim Allen, Tom Hanks. Yeah, thank you, Mandy. Oh, I love doing trivia. It's like my favorite thing ever. Thank you. I know. And it's funny because I didn't even realize that we had Trivia Star on um, sponsoring this episode. So I was like, wow, that worked out perfectly. We'll do yeah. some trivia. <laughs> there you go. Download Trivia Star. There's your double shout out there, Trivia Star. But yeah, I absolutely love it. That was fun. Thank you. For sure. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that was the story for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. 